Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 25th annual Noosa meeting of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group. The role of ECMO continues to expand as experience with it grows. How can it be applied in the setting of refractory cardiac arrest? Aidan Burrell is a researcher and intensivist at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, and he joins me to discuss the topic of eCPR. Aidan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Aidan, can you tell us about eCPR and how, uh, you know, how that can be effective? So eCPR is a, is a process where patients who are undergoing cardiac, who are in cardiac arrest, having CPR uh, done, where um, ECMO via ECMO is initiated um, at that point and uh, to provide support for the, the circulation. It's um, it's a process, practically what it means is putting large cannulas into the groins of patients, uh, one cannula in the venous side, one cannula in the arterial side, um, commencing them on ECMO and returning, uh, you know, pressurized blood that's oxygenated into the patient's arterial system. And um, it's very good at um, supporting the circulation. It's very good at supporting, uh, at preventing brain injury during cardiac arrest. Um, and what it does is provide a stability in order for um, the patient to have other treatments such as uh, coronary uh, interventions um, and, um, and and further treatments and prognostication and things like that. Firstly, starting with um, uh, eCPR in hospital, what research has been done so far in this area, Aidan? Look, um, it depends on the study. There's been three major RCTs on the question of benefit around um, hospital-based eCPR. Um, they sort of tell a sort of a conflicting story a little bit. It's all in the nuance. Probably the take-home is um, that in higher volume centres with a lot of experience where you can get patients to the hospital onto ECMO very quickly, by quickly I mean on ECMO within 60 minutes, then there's almost certainly a benefit. And, and this benefit could be quite large. Um, if you have a more of a disparate network with um, varying degrees of experience and um, prolonged times from, from arrest to initiation, then the benefit is, is very minimal or there may be no benefit at all. So it's, it's a bit nuanced, but, you know, I think, I think there is a, uh, I think the evidence is supportive, but in a, in a, in the right context. Aidan, what are the logistics of delivering this pre-hospital? So, um, look, even hospital-based eCPR is complex and um, requires a huge team of dedicated people. Um, the actual process of um, of doing of doing ECMO, you know, there's the the cannulation aspects, but that's really a smallish component of really the coordination of a huge number of people while resuscit you know while resuscitation is ongoing. Um, while uh, you know getting priorities right, it, it, it takes a, a lot of uh, training and, and um, dedicated people. Um, when you move that from the hospital setting and move that to the pre-hospital setting, it's it's kind of the, there's two factors. On the, on the one hand, um, it can be more more difficult because you're in a in a in a different environment. You are um, you know you're having to deal with things like uh, you know crowd control. 
the the you know the, the the actual position of the patient and things like that. Um, on the other hand, uh, we found that we actually have a smaller team. Each individual individual member of the team is highly trained and can do multiple roles. And in in some ways, there can be some efficiencies as well in having such a small team. Um, but I, it, you know, the, it is a complex process. Um, it requires a lot of training. It sounds like an incredibly resource-intensive process. I presume that this is going to depend fairly heavily on patient selection. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So there's sort of two parts to that. So the resource-intense component. So um, you know, ECMO. There's you know, there's costs of of the the actual. Um, the console and circuits is reasonably expensive. It's about $5,000 for a circuit. Um, it's about $80,000 for a console. In the context of a, of a big healthcare system, it's it's not that expensive compared to you know, some interventions and treatments that we give to our patients. Um, where a lot of the um, resources come from is very prolonged runs of, of ECMO, uh, with very long length of stay in ICU, you know, that that can get up to the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, the interesting thing about eCPR is um, you know, it's a it's a very um it's a very sort of binary outcome. Unfortunately, there are some people that die, but they tend to die very quickly. Um, and then there are other people that tend to get better, but they also tend to get better quite quickly. So in that sense, um, you know, there is um uh, you, you know there are resources required to to actually initiate and, and to get things uh, you know up and running. However, when people do survive, they tend to survive uh, well and they tend to recover quite quickly out of the ICU. I think a, a point I really want to emphasise is that um, when you look at out of hospital cardiac arrest, there's about twenty five thousand Australians that that occurs in each year, but the number of people eligible for ECMO, either pre-hospital or hospital-based ECMO, is in fact incredibly small. The group of patients that can potentially benefit are people who tend to be younger, so 65 or younger. They have a witnessed VT or VF arrest. Um, there's some controversy around PEA, but for, for this, I think just to say that it, there needs to be a lot of favourable uh, outcomes in order for ECPR to be effective. Um, it does mean that when you look at a, you know, when you look at a consort diagram in a typical study, and you've got all the people screened, it's thousands of people. It sort of gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, the number of people that we're looking at is very small. Um, so I think that always needs to be remembered in, when we're talking about ECPR. This is not a solution for everyone. It's only for a select group of patients who, who have a disease that is refractory to conventional treatment but who otherwise have some favourable characteristics. What can you tell us about the Sherpa trial and how it will be run? So, um, look, it was it was great to be able to, to bring this to the CTG meeting in Noosa just recently because, um, you know, we are, we are still working on the design and working on the exact, uh, you know, mechanisms of how we'll ask this question. I mean, in essence, what what is standard care at the moment in... Um, in really in, in Melbourne and in Sydney uh, for, for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is patients are brought to uh, some of the major ECMO centres and they have ECMO initiated um, and this is hospital-based uh, ECPR 
Um, and really our question is around, um, you know, if we uh, have a team that can go out to the patient, does that result in patients getting on ECMO faster, reducing that low flow time, and does it improve, improve outcomes? Um, and so that's the kind of design we're looking at. So um, a randomized trial where um, people in refractory cardiac arrest are randomized to either of those two interventions. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's complex area, it involves, um, you know, ambulance services, um, you know, in some states, retrieval uh, teams and retrieval doctors, um, uh, you know, a whole range of hospital-based care and resources from the ICU to the cath lab to, um, you know, a, a huge team of um, people looking after the patients afterwards. So, um, you know, we, the final details I, I can, you know, uh, have to say are not completely fleshed out, but, you know, I think we're slowly getting towards a design that will work. And amongst those many challenges in the pre-hospital space is the issue of consent. How do you get around that in a pre-hospital trial? That's a great question. Um, you know, as you know, um, the ideal for doing any sort of research is to have prospective consent and for us to be able to talk to talk to the patient or ideally, um, you know, their family. It's just not possible in some of these studies, um, particularly cardiac arrest. So um, we, you know, there's there's a few different ways that we can do this. We we want to engage with the community before, so the community has some awareness this is going on. Um, we look at, um, you know, in some states what we call a delayed consent. So the patients are commenced on a treatment because of the time uh, issues, and then the families are approached afterwards, and then they can always be removed at that point. Um, in other studies. Um, there can be a, um, not so much in, uh, you know, this design, but in in more comparative effectiveness trials, we can do what's called an opt-out. So we'll approach a family and provide them information. And at that point, families can opt out. But look, it's a complex area. Um, I think our desire is always to keep the families as informed of the process as much as possible um, while balancing the need to, to start these interventions very early. Aidan, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and all the best with the study. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.